We've been going through a series on justice and mercy on Sunday mornings. And uh, normally what I do, <clears throat> because we're coming into the middle of a text or the middle of a book or uh, midway through uh, the writings of an apostle, I'll give a modern day parable. I, I'll, I often start sermons that way to orient us to either the context or the tone or maybe give uh, prepare us to kind of segue into the background of what it is that we're about to read. Well, this morning, I don't need a modern day parable because the text is a parable. So we're going to go straight to the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25. <clears throat> On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, who's my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and when he, he was attacked by robbers and they stripped him of his clothes and they beat him and they went away leaving him half dead. And a priest happened to be going down the same road and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. And so too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw the man, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey and brought him to an inn to take care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii, and he gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have incurred. Now, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell in the hands of the robbers? And the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. This is God's word. <clears throat> now, this parable of the Good Samaritan is a very, very well-known teaching, world-renowned teaching. And so we pray that this morning... This teaching that is very familiar will speak to us in a new and a fresh way. So I want us to look carefully at this text and ask a few questions. The first question is, why did Jesus give this teaching? And the second question is, what does it look like to keep God's law? And the third question we want to ask is, how is keeping God's law propelled by God's grace? So firstly, why did Jesus give this teaching? The guy asked, who's my neighbor? And instead of just giving him an answer, Jesus gives him a whole parable. He gives him a whole story. This law expert wants to trap Jesus. He's a law expert. He knows what the law says. When Jesus asked him, he quoted it. He summarized it. He knows. What's going on here? Why do we have this teaching? He wants to contest what he thinks Jesus' answer to the law is going to be. How do I know that? Well, we know this because as we look at the life of Jesus leading up to this moment, <clears throat> he is in a huge collision course with the prevailing religious idea of the day. The predominant idea about the kingdom of God was that you 
keep the law, you work hard, in the end of your life, the, the, the scales are weighed, and then if you've kept the law and you've been obedient and you've, and you've done what God has required, then you enter the kingdom. Then along comes Jesus and he's talking about the kingdom like it's right now. Like you can enter the kingdom now. Like you can actually know that you're saved now. And that's in a huge collision course with the, with the religious mind. Because the religious mind was, well, salvation is an eventual possibility. And Jesus was talking about salvation like if you trusted in him, it could actually be a present reality. So the law expert had a huge problem with this. He's like, clearly Jesus has a very low view of the law. Clearly Jesus is very soft on sin. If I look at all the people Jesus is hanging out with and having dinner with and having intimate uh, you know, fellowship and friendship with, I think Jesus has a really low view of the law. So I'm going to ask Jesus what he thinks it takes to be saved. This is what's actually going on, which is motivating. If you look at verse 26, um, there's two questions that are asked about the law. What is written and how do you read it? Those are two different questions, right? What does the law say and how do you interpret what it says? And so this is what's going on when, it, when he kind of summarizes it. And so <clears throat> because, because the law expert thinks that Jesus is soft on sin, you know, he's going to catch him and, and expects maybe Jesus is going to say something like, well, just trust in me and the law doesn't matter uh, or, or something, to the, something to this effect. But here's what we learn about the gospel. Before the gospel liberates us, it confronts us. Before Jesus liberates anybody, he actually confronts them. Before the gospel, you know, uh, uh, you know helps us escape the heat of our sin, it actually turn, turns up the heat so that we can actually see our sin. And that's what actually is going on in motivating Jesus' uh, teaching here. God's law requires perfect and personal and perpetual love. Jesus is actually turning up the heat on the lawyer. The reason we have this teaching is because Jesus is saying, I know you think it's me that has a low view of the law, but son, you have a low view of the law. And what's Jesus' motivation? It's not to crush the man, it's to save the man. But before you can save him, the law, the weight of God's law and what it requires actually does need to crush him. Jesus' whole goal here is that at the end of this, the law expert is going to say, have mercy on me. That's his goal of this parable of, of the Good Samaritan. And not to give it and have the law expert look at that and go, yeah, okay, I'll just go off and do that and save myself now. Save myself through the law. Actually, if you look at Jesus' uh, words, when Jesus says, um, uh, do this and you will live, that's a direct quote out of the book of Leviticus. The do this and live, keep the law and live. And he's motivating him to say, who can keep it? Who can do it? Ultimately, what Jesus wants to do is to be able to say, if you will trust in me, um, I will accredit to you mercy. I, will, uh, I have a higher view of the law than you. I'm the only one that can keep the law and I'm the only one that can save you. If you look at verse 29, this, this uh, young man, this law expert says, it, the text says, seeking to justify himself, he asks, who's my neighbor? Now, Jesus could have easily just defined neighbor in a word, but instead he gives this teaching, right? And what this does is it invites everybody who is seeking to justify themselves to see just how deep our sin actually goes and just how high the requirements of God's law of love actually are. And just how impossible it is for us to actually justify ourselves. Tell me who my neighbor is. Because if you tell me who my neighbor is, I can shrink God's law down. I can confine it, reduce it, make it doable. 
right? Outside on the street, uh, in front of our house, there's this basketball net. Nigel and I play basketball out there all the time. And there's a problem with the net. <clears throat> the official height of a basketball rim is 10 feet. This net is probably around nine feet. And one of the neighborhood kids loves to go out and dunk on the net. And because he's dunked on the net, kind of bent the front of the rim down. So there's a lot of shots that I would normally make, trust me, that, I, that don't go in because the, somebody bent the rim. Now, if that neighborhood kid lays in bed at night and he thinks to himself, oh man, it's so amazing that I can dunk. You can't dunk, son. You can't dunk because it's, you've lowered the rim. You've lowered the bar. That's what this whole thing is. That's why we have the teaching of the Good Samaritan. Because this law expert, he's had lowered the bar to say we can actually keep, keep God's law and we can do it. And so uh, what we see here in this parable of the Good Samaritan is if God's law says that we are to love our neighbor, then this parable is a picture of who our neighbor is and what that love will actually look like. So let's move on. What does it look like? What does it look like to keep God's law? I want you to look at Jesus' words very carefully. Look at how Jesus describes the fulfillment of God's law. And let's think about the implications of this. There is care and compassion. This guy's invested emotionally. He's moved deeply emotionally. He stops. He's en route to go do something and he carves time out of his life. He is inconvenienced massively. This was not in his plan, but he, he lives the kind of life that is willing to be inconvenienced and shift. There is medical assistance. There is medical care. There is financial subsidy. There is financial generosity. There is protection and transportation and shelter. The reason I'm, I'm drawing your attention to all these things is I want you to notice just how practical this is, just how physical and material it is. The question is, what does God's law require? And the answer is, it's really, really physical and practical. And Jesus draws this picture. God's law cannot be kept when it's reduced to being some, you know, personal and spiritual. God's law, the application of God's law of love can only be kept when it is communal it must be communal. When it's societal, it must be societal. Unless it transcends outside of you know, this personal idea of what we think uh, loving God looks like to being communal and societal, it can't be walked out. When Jesus describes it, think of, think of the gravity of this. When he says, <clears throat> when Jesus describes the law, he doesn't describe Oh, sorry, when Jesus describes uh, the fulfillment of the law, he doesn't describe a worship service. He doesn't uh, describe a personal quiet time, sitting on our deck with a coffee and reading our Bibles. He doesn't describe anything that remotely resembles that at all. When he describes it, uh, we see that it looks like going about our life, encountering a need, and then using whatever we have in our power to meet it. And so... If Jesus' teachings on the outwork, outworkings of God's law have this uncanny resemblance to social work, you know, as if that's not provocative enough, this thing is racially charged. And as we've been going through this series on justice and mercy, perhaps some of you have been thinking to yourself, oh my goodness, <clears throat> this sounds a lot like we're dealing with a lot of isms. 
it sounds like on Sunday mornings, the last four weeks in Redeemer, there's a lot of socialism or, 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 or uh, you know, shots across the bow at capitalism. I'm going to invite you to abandon your isms. I'm going to invite you to just look at the text for what the text is, that we are so thoroughly baptized in our culture to worship at the altar of our isms, whatever it is, that we've got to abandon that to actually see what Jesus is, is saying and what God's law is saying and how that actually informs uh, how we go about our lives. But not only is this a practical care, a practical generosity, it is, this thing is racially charged, which is uh, relevant for the day that we live in, these challenges that we have ongoing, week in and week out, that are racially charged. Jesus did that on purpose. Look at this. There is massive hostility between these ethnic groups, the Samaritan and the Jew. In John chapter 8, the religious leaders get so mad at Jesus, they're like, you're a Samaritan. That's what they do in John 8. It's like a curse word for them. It's like an insult. In, John, in Luke 10, actually before this text, before we get to the Good Samaritan, Jesus is going to go to Samaria. Uh, but but the, the Bible says that Jesus had set his face toward the Jews, in terms you know, this love and care for Jerusalem. And then he's going to go to Samaria, Samaria. And the Samaritans find out, oh, you love the Jews? Oh, we hate those people. So they don't welcome Jesus. And then what did the disciples do? The disciples who are Jews, they're not like, oh, let's pray for mercy for the Samaritans. The disciples are like, Lord, should we call down fire on those people? There is this radical ethnic hostility. So Jesus puts it in uh, this, this picture of the working out of God's law. What does that love look like? He puts it in here on purpose. Uh, so what Jesus does is he intentionally chooses to make the person who's in need and destitute, he chooses to make that person a Jew. And then he chooses to make the person who has the power, the ability, the resource, a Samaritan. And so for us, this is, we kind of know that in an intellectual way, maybe that you know, these two group, people groups didn't get together and there's ethnic hostility. But I promise you, the first readers who were listening to this story, they were like, what dark universe is this? What dark universe is this that a Jew is going to need help from a Samaritan? This was, this was outrageous. This was ethnic. This was like outrageous. And so in the end, what you notice is even in verse 37, the, the law expert can't even bring himself to say, when Jesus says, who's the hero of the story? The, the law expert can't even say, the Samaritan is the hero of the story. He's like, the one who showed mercy. He can't even say it. Don't let that detail get lost on you. This thing is racially charged. And it's important because love is the fulfillment of the law. Romans 13 teaches us this, right? And that love will destroy bias. That love will tear down walls of socioeconomic class, of ethnic or race, race division, of gender inequalities. The love of God, the fulfillment of the law, it'll tear those things down. And it was actually the mark of the early church. That was one of the reasons why in the early church, the early church exploded through Rome was because these barriers were just torn to the ground and it spread through Rome like wildfire. I'll give you a quick example. 362 AD, uh, Julian writes this in his tolerance edict because he's trying to revive paganism because Christianity is exploding through Rome. And this is what he wrote in his edict. This is a direct quote. These impious Galileans, the Christians, not only feed their own poor, but ours also. Welcoming, welcoming them into their agape love, they attract them as children are attracted with cakes. 
He was so frustrated that people were becoming Christians because they were saying, what would motivate these people to care for the poor that aren't even their own poor? What would motivate these people to move outside of the, the boundaries of their own comfortable ethnicity to care for somebody outside that? It was blowing their minds. It marked the early church. And I pray to God it marks our church. And so when we start to examine what it looks like, it, the love of God in action, the love of God walked out. It is this radical justice and mercy, this compassion and this love for neighbor. It's physical and practical and tangible. And quickly, for those of you who may have joined us this morning who are new to the scriptures or exploring Christianity or new um, to the understanding of what, what the Bible talks about salvation, you need to know this very quickly, that acts of mercy and justice are not the means of salvation. They are the marks of salvation. They're not the means of faith. They're the marks of true saving faith. For example, Martin Luther would say, we're saved by faith alone, but that faith doesn't stay alone. In other words, you know, you even think about how Jesus talked about uh, the end of time. Matthew 25, you read Matthew 25. Jesus says of one group, I was poor, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was naked and you clothed me. When Jesus talks about compassion for the poor, it's not like this optional thing. He's like, there's two kinds of people, Christian, two kinds of people in the church, Christians and people who say they're Christians, people whose hearts have been gripped by grace and people who just want to say grace, grace, grace. But these people, the, the, the true faith is motivating something. And so that's the way that Jesus kind of talked about it. The poor are a mirror of, our, of ourselves. And so saving faith is not going to be this dormant lip service about the grace of Jesus. Saving faith, it plays out in this ongoing endeavor to imitate Jesus. Very, imperfe very imperfectly, but continually. And so true saving faith looks like that desire to uh, imitate the one who saved us in grace. Now, this Samaritan, or sorry, Jesus chooses the Samaritan to provocatively and unapologetically teach that the outworkings of God's law are going to look like being ministers of social healing, right? What do I mean by being ministers of social healing? That's what this text is. You can't read the Good Samaritan and come away from it and say, it's not, it's not that important that we're involved in social healing, right? Or social healing is something that social just, you know, the social justice warriors do. And as Christians, we can sit back and be like, maybe or maybe not, maybe I won't get involved in that. It's impossible to read this text faithfully and come to that conclusion. But what does it mean, though, to be a minister of social healing? It means that when we encounter people of every ethnicity, we relate to them with dignity and respect. We will use our power. We will use our resources. We will use whatever it is at our disposal to care for the poor. We will be moved with compassion for the needy. Because ultimately the question is not, who is my neighbor? Tell me so that I can make God's law doable and arrange my life and surround myself with the kinds of people that, oh, look, I love. The question is, will anyone who encounters me, regardless of their ethnicity or their social standing, find me to be a person of love? That's what Jesus is provoking. So if this is what it looks like to keep God's law, how is keeping God's law actually propelled by God's grace? I mean, how do we as a church community, KW Redeemer, uh, how do we kind of walk this out? Because we know that um, Jesus uses all these practical descriptors. So they're informative, for sure. We can look at this and come away and think about things like 
intentionally setting aside money to give, right? You, you folks are very generous in giving to the church so that we can continue the teachings of scripture, further the gospel, giving to the poor, being compassionate. But you know, perhaps for some of you, giving money is easy. Perhaps for some of you, you're like, I'm going to just carve out some of this money and I can give that and it happens in the background and it's actually easy. But giving your time <laughs> is actually the sacrifice. Per- perhaps in this North American culture, that's the thing. Say, whoa, carve time out of my life to volunteer, to serve. I'm not talking about the church. I'm not talking about Sunday morning when we return to Sunday mornings. That's a, that's a given. That as a family, we're going to you know, care for each other. I'm talking about the city. Whoa to give time, to add time to my day, um, to pick up extra things in the shopping list. Then I got to take extra time to drive to the food bank, extra time to drive to the one roof youth shelter, extra time to drive to the refugee house, drop off those vegetables, drop off that clothing. That's like extra time I got to carve out of my life. Perhaps that's actually uh, the real challenge for us. But as we think about it, think about this law of love of loving our neighbor I know for me personally, I think if we're honest, we all have more time and more resources and more ability and more power than we're giving. And when Jesus teaches this lesson on the Good Samaritan, he's saying to that young law expert, you think you're keeping the law, but you're not keeping the law because you have more power, you have more ability, you have more resource, you have more privilege than you're using And that cuts him to the heart, that cuts me to the heart, that cuts you to the heart. And if I were to stop the sermon right here, it would be a very true and faithful sermon to this text. It'd be like, yeah, we we gotta be like that good Samaritan. That's true, that's good, that's right. Um, It would be true, but imagine the guilt this afternoon. (laughs) You'd be sitting in your, oh my goodness, the tremendous guilt. Yeah, is is it true that you and I have more time and resource and ability and power than we're willing to give? Yes, of course that's true. Of course, it's good that we should all try harder to be good Samaritans. Um, But where's the power to do it? No question, it's important for us to consider, right? If we're like the priest or the Levite, religious motions, loveless and unmoved in the end, you know, to the one who's desperate in need. That's a good consideration. No, no, No question, it's important for us to consider. If there's shadows of racism lurking in our hearts, leading us to the ungodly delusion that we're superior to the one who's in need. And no question, it's important to consider, you know, maybe we cross over to the other side, like the Levite and the priest did. Maybe we cross over to the other side because we have a death grip on our schedules or we worship at the altar of me time or, you know, we fear we're never going to have enough money. I'm not going to have enough money to retire. I'm not going to have enough money. I got to hoard my money. I got to sit on it like a dragon in a cave and just smother my gold. Maybe this is our fear. Maybe that's why we don't want to make eye contact or come in contact with the poor. Because if I don't have to see it, I don't have to deal with the guilt that arises that I'm not getting involved in it. These are all good considerations. It's a good thing for us to look at this parable of the Good Samaritan and say, you know what, I want to be more like the Good Samaritan helping the one who's in need. But the power to do it, that comes when we look at this parable And we say, where am I in this parable? And we say, oh my God, I'm the one who is desperate and in need. I'm the one laying in the street left for dead. And Jesus was the one who came in scandalous grace and met all my need. The power we need to repeatedly answer the call to live like the Good Samaritan flows from the gratitude 
that Jesus is the good Samaritan. Look in verse 33, the Samaritan is moved with compassion, this deep, compelling emotion from the depths of the inner man. That's a word that was often described to describe Jesus. The intentional inclusion of this ethnic hostility, it invites us to see that the Samaritan had no obligation to get involved. Jesus was not obligated to get involved, right? The gospel changes how we see the poor because it's a mirror to realize we were spiritually poor. The Samaritan could have said, after all of your hostility toward me, you don't deserve my mercy. And Romans 8 says that God could have said, after all of your hostility towards me, you don't deserve my mercy. You see, we can't be saved by grace unless we're poor in spirit. Poor in spirit, not middle class in spirit, not upper, not upper class in spirit. Poor in spirit. Nobody's middle class. You know, I'm doing pretty good. I just need an, a, the occasional, you know, top up of grace from Jesus. <laughs> Nobody's middle class. Nobody's upper class. Hey, I'm keeping the law. I am keeping God's law. Thanks, Jesus, for the cross. It was kind of divine overkill because I'm able to obey. I don't need your grace. I'm a grace graduate. There's, nobody is middle class in spirit. Nobody is upper class in spirit. We're all poor in spirit. And when we see that, that truly transforms and changes us. In verse 35, the Samaritan says, right at the end of, this, of, of the parable, the Samaritan says, I will pay the entire debt. You tell me what they owe, I'll pay what they owe. And on the cross, when sin left us for dead, Jesus, his last words were, it is finished. I have paid what they owe. Mm -hmm. And so as we live in worship and wonder of Christ's mercy for us, may the renewing power of his spirit make us ministers of mercy, showing his love for others. Let's pray.